Well, uh, Russell Moore has said recently that we now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe that the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. And over the past six years, there's been a fracturing among American Christians, haven't there? Racism, politics, COVID policies could explain much of this fracturing. And as a result of these topics, tribes have been formed, words have been weaponized, and relationships once thought to be deep and abiding have eroded. Not the least of these have been relationships inside the life of the church. Now, I'm thankful to God that that has not happened in this church. But it has not been the case in others. Other churches have really suffered as a result of the events of the past six years. As a lost world watches us, and we are reminded by Jesus' words in John that said, They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. But as bad as it has been at times and even continues to be, the light of Christ has not left us. We've seen the light of Christ in countless ways amidst the trials and temptations over the past six years. I've seen it in you. I've seen it in friends. I've seen it in other pastors and churches. Uh, And as we have been learning, the Lord teaches us to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Knowing that God is producing steadfastness in us. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, produces completeness. Not lacking anything. But of course, we've seen a lot of pain over the past six years. And yet at the same time, we have seen gains. No pain, no gain. We've seen both. See, as bad as things have gotten in the church across America, we've seen a lot of steadfastness, a lot of completeness being taken on. And of course, it will most often never reach the headlines. And yet it's there happening beneath the surface. In fact, I've gone on record as saying that I believe in the next 10, 20, 30 years, the best days for the church in this nation are in front of us. Which leads to the question, what's the difference between those people and or those churches who have weathered the storms of the past six years well versus those that have not? What's the difference? How can we evaluate the difference in those two? How can we explain the fruitlessness amidst the trials and temptations of late amongst some confessing Christians? And how can we explain those that have been fruitful amidst the trials and temptations of the past six years? And particularly, how might we learn to apply those to our own personal lives as well? Well, you'll see, friends, that James will answer that question. James is going to explain for us what fruitfulness looks like. And along the way, he will explain what fruitlessness looks like. And so when disagreement or disillusionment come as a result of trials and temptations, James is going to tell us that since we are brought forth by the word of truth, we need to then display the fruit of that word by receiving the implanted word of truth if we are going to live in that salvation. That's the doctor's prescription for us this morning. He will supply also five things that we need to do in order to have the medicine take its full effect in our hearts and minds. So that's the big idea this morning. Big idea, receive with meekness the implanted word. That's the doctor's prescription. Receive with meekness the implanted word. And again, five uh, points to make that uh, work happen all the more readily. 
And so if we are going to remain steadfast and receive the crown of life, magnifying our great delight, Christ the Lord, revealing ourselves as authentic Christians, we're going to have to receive the Lord or receive the word with meekness. That's the key factor to church health. Here we go. James chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 18. I want you all to see that first fruits there. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. This is the passage we'll focus on. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word. All right, two things about the medicine of the word before we get to those five ways to prepare for the medicine. Two things about the word in particular. First off, the authority of the word. Notice the predominance of James's use of the word right in this passage. Did you notice that? Last week we saw it in verse 18, right? We were brought forth by the word of truth. We see it today in verse 21, right? Right there in verse 22, we see also we need to be doers of the word. We'll think about that next week. And then in verse 25, we see the word referred to as the perfect law of liberty. And so James understands, as Christians have always believed, that the word of God is our authority. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, right? And our and we show our faith, our trust in him as king when we submit to his word. And as we do, as we as Christians submit to Christ by submitting to his word, we find that the word of truth saves us, verse 18, and will save us, verse 21, able to save our souls. And so, friends, it's common, as we referenced last week, it's common for the Bible to talk about salvation, past, present, and future. God has saved the Christian by the word of truth, the gospel, verse 18. God is saving us now by the implanted word, verse 21. And God will save us by the word of truth upon the return of Christ. Christ is king. A Christian is one who has faith in Christ as evidenced by their submitting to the word of Christ. You see, you saw that in Aaron, submitting to the command to be baptized this morning. The word of Christ is defined in particular by this book, the Bible. In fact, to our great amazement, Christ himself did this. When he humbled himself and became a man, Jesus Christ placed himself under the authority of the word. He taught the Bible, he obeyed the Bible, and he called others to do the same. He said himself, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, the Bible, but instead to fulfill him, to fulfill them, and so he did. And so what Christ, the king, asks of his people to submit to the authority of word, so Christ did himself. But that's not the only reason we submit to the word as our authority. Secondly, we submit to the word because it's our salvation. It's our liberty. You can see that again in verse 18, salvation. You'll see it there in verse 21, able to save our souls. And again, you'll see it next week as we look in verse 25, the perfect law of liberty. And so the word most definitely binds or constricts. We as Christians do not apologize for that. Of course it does. The word binds or constricts. Uh, and so it must, just as the same way that we find that traffic laws and, say, the laws of physics or the laws of gravity also constrict. Right? So you can choose to reject these laws, but your life will not be better because of it. Right? Only when I and others obey traffic laws can I enjoy the ride up the Pacific Coast 
highway. Only when I obey the laws of gravity can I enjoy the sight of the Grand Canyon and sit behind its rails and not fall over the cliff. Likewise, when I think about cliffs, it's only when I obey the biological laws of our material existence that I know that I, I can jump off a 10-foot cliff, but I would be a fool to jump off a 1,000-foot cliff. I can make that choice, but I have to fa- face the consequences. Everyone obeys some kinds of law or worldview, and everyone ha- has to obey, at least they must obey, they should consider obeying those scientific limitations. The question is, friends, are we obeying the laws and the limitations that were meant to give us freedom, liberty? Or are we embracing laws and limitations that are actually hurting us? Quoting verse 21 there, Christians believe the implanted word of God is able to save us. And verse 25, free us to be who God made us to be. It's the kind of owner's manual to the world that God made. Again, we'll think about this more next week, but it's worth mentioning here in Washington, D.C. and around the country, we've been told that the way to freedom, the way to life, love and liberty is to be our authentic selves by rejecting any limitations or definitions and become who we want to be. But friends, in the last six years, have, as they have begun to reveal, that worldview has come with devastating results. So much so that people might be beginning to be looking for something else. Maybe that's why you're here. Karen Swallow Pryor says it well. She says, quote, the age of the autonomous individual, the age of the narcissist itself, the age of consumerism and moral drift has left us with bitterness and division, a surging mental health crisis and people just being nasty to one another. Millions, she says, are looking for something else, some system of belief that is communal, that gives life transcendent meaning, unquote. Friends, that's exactly what James and the rest of the Bible is after. Forming communities, bound together, covenanted together, churches that are defined and oriented to God's transcendent word, which is able to save our souls. Only when we are able to receive that implanted word, will it then save our souls. That is, when we are able to receive that implanted word, will it heal us? Will it mend us? Will it lead us on to the path of life? That's James' whole point here. And so amidst a a world of deception and confusion and anger and trials and tribulation, beloved, receive the implanted word and then it will save your souls. That's the heart of our mission as a church. Jesus built us to do all kinds of things, as we will consider in a couple weeks. We care for the poor, the orphan and the widow. But we also keep ourselves unstained from the world, verse 27. So how is it we know how to do that? How do we know what is right, what is wrong? Well, we have to, the work of the church is to make disciples. How do we make disciples? By receiving with meekness the implanted word. By teaching, preaching, singing, praying, obeying, and seeing, as we have this morning, the word of God. Only the church of Jesus Christ, friends, is uniquely equipped to do this. But that brings us back to the problem, doesn't it? The church is fractured and Christians are fractured even though they've both been appealing to the word as authoritative and liberating haven't they they do so by emphasizing one set of christians sort of emphasizing one piece of the word to the neglect of the other one group says christians should stand for justice another group of christians says well we should just preach the gospel one group says we should care for the poor the other says we should just teach the bible one group says we should love our enemies The other one says we should call sinners to repentance. 
One group says we should mask up and because the government says so. Romans 13. The other group says we shouldn't blindly obey the government. And on and on it goes. All of Christians agree that we should receive the implanted word in order to have our souls saved. They see it as authoritative. They see it as liberating. But how is it we get on in this salvation work? How do we know who to listen to? How do we know how to have these kinds of conversations? How do we receive the implanted word amidst a world of trials and tribulations and disagreements? Well, we need wisdom, don't we? We need to have correctly applied truth. But God gives it generously, and he's done so in his word. Here's the first of five things. This is how we go about knowing how to navigate these conversations and live in the freedom and the authority of God's world amidst these trials and tribulations. Here we go. We receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls by first being quick to hear. By being quick to hear. So if you've ever been in an argument, you know right off the bat, this is one of the most frustrating, most anger-inducing aspects of disagreement, isn't it? The opposition simply won't listen to the point. They're only interested in telling you their point. Right? They talk over you, they dismiss you, or as most, or as is probably most common, even as they're not talking, the whole time they're forming in their minds the ways they're going to attack you. Not listening. They do all kinds of things except listen. Right? The image we all have is of the two opposing sides at the picket line. The pro-choice picket line is confronted by the pro-life advocate. Right? They get into a shouting match, and back and back it goes, each making their point, each, oftentimes, not listening. You're at home with your roommate. They complain about the fact that you're not washing the dishes. And they say, I always wash the dishes. And they say, no, you don't. And you don't listen to each other, and they just start arguing. And by the way, I should mention, most often, the words always and never are attack words. If you've been to our premarital counseling, you know that. We talk about that a lot. But if we're going to see our souls continue to be saved and remain steadfast, complete, lacking nothing, if we're going to receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls, we're going to have to be quick to listen, quick to hear, quick to hear. And maybe a good place to start for most of us is to admit that when it comes to a moment of disagreement or disillusionment, we don't do this well. Most of us are not good listeners. And yet, when you think about it, who are the kinds of people you love being around? People that are good listeners. People that listen well. Not just are silent, but they're actually trying to think about what it is you're saying. Loving you by listening to you. And instead, not trying to beat the idea in their minds as they look at you silently. And that's where the problem is for most of us. That's true of me. That's true of me. When I'm in a disagreement or I'm disillusioned because of something that has happened, I oftentimes don't listen most of the time because I want to win. I want to win. I want to win the argument. I don't listen because most of the time I want to win. And this is exactly, by the way, where James is going to take us. If you slide down to James 4.1, it says there, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So what James is telling us is I don't listen because I'm passionate about myself and my point and my understanding. And so as a consequence, I'm slow to hear. I'm slow to listen. One man who is recovering from his anger said in an article I read this past week, he said, quote, 
I have come to see that my anger rarely had anything to do with righteous indignation. He said it was just an expression of my personal annoyance and wounded pride. My pride and hurt feelings were idols in my life, he said. See, we like to think our strident disagreements are principled and righteous. And sometimes, to be clear, they are. They most definitely are. But oftentimes they are expressions of our own personal interest. As James says, our own passions at war within us. And so if we are going to receive the implanted word and see our souls saved, beloved, we must reject our own passions that so quickly want to talk, defend, advance, or hurt, and instead be quick to listen, quick to understand those of whom we're interacting with. Love the other person by listening and considering the other person instead of arguing with the person and not talking, which is the next point. Look at there in the text. If we are going to live under the authority of Christ by living under the authority of his word, receiving the implanted word which is able to save our souls, we must be quick to listen and secondly, slow to speak. Slow to speak. Paul or James says there, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Slide down to verse 26 of chapter one. Look at that. If anyone, he says, thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless if he doesn't bridle his tongue. James, of course, will go on in chapter 3 to talk a lot about our tongues and the ways in which we have so much difficulty bridling them. Maybe most hauntingly, Jesus says himself in Matthew twelve thirty six, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. One of the ways that you know that you're slow to listen is that you're quick to speak. And again, friends, I've done this a thousand times myself. Maybe you and your wife are talking about how you're always late. She's making a point about what happened last week in the midst of the discussion. Emotions begin to rise. And what are you doing the whole time? Just looking for a way to get in there, right? Speak. No, 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 but you, right? Not listening. The slightest break, trying to defend yourself, to break in with words. Or maybe a friend is explaining to you why we should still wear masks or get fully boosted with vaccines. Or, or they're, and they're spitting out line after line from CDC data. And you, opposing their point, can't wait to get in with this other fact that you have and you're trying to speak into it. Yeah, but yeah, but, 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 but. Back and forth it goes. We want to win. And so we aren't quick to listen. And we are quick to talk. Look at how wisdom informs this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs ten nineteen. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent, wise. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Beloved, you cannot receive the implanted word of God. Your soul cannot receive the healing medicine of the word if you are not quick to listen and slow to speak. Third ingredient. 
You cannot receive the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls unless you are third, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Quick to, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Owen reminded me, Owen Bechtel reminded me this week of David Powelson's wonderful book, Good and Angry, how chapter two, this is the entire chapter. It says, do you have a serious problem with your anger? And the answer is yes. That's the whole chapter. <laughs> We're all struggling with anger, aren't we? We all do. So it's not hard to see why James places anger right here in this passage, right? Someone that is slow to listen and quick to speak will invariably also be quick to anger. They just go together. And we should be clear at the front end of this, as the case is almost always made at the front end of this discussion, yes, Jesus did flip the tables. Yes, Jesus did get angry. Yes, also, I would argue, not argue, it's very plain. Ephesians 4, 26 makes clear that we should be angry, yet not sin. Quite frankly, I wish more Christians got angry like that. I wish more Christians were bothered at false doctrine or false living and loving in the name of Jesus. Instead, though, too often Christians don't care much about these things and instead get angry at other things. Regardless, the point here is the word of truth does teach us to have what is called righteous anger, a good kind of anger. We should be angry about certain things. And so James is not saying that we should never be angry, just like he's not saying that we should never talk and only listen. But the reality is, if we were being honest, oftentimes when anger comes on, we often like to believe our anger is always right. When in reality, it's often our own passions that are war within us. And how is it we evaluate how that's going on, whether I'm on the side of righteous indignation or, or sinful anger? Well, we can ask. Wisdom would tell us, are we being quick to listen? Are we, are we being slow to speak? Are we being slow towards that anger? And since we're talking about anger, let's do a bit of an anatomy of anger, shall we? In this section of the sermon, I'm going to pull off a lot of David Powelson's work uh, he says that anger is at its core is, I'm against that. Really profound, isn't it? He says that it's an active stance that you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. You notice something, size it up, and say, quote, that matters and it's not right. And as we've said, sometimes our anger is motivated by the right things and expressed in the right way. But more often, our anger is driven by our own passions, our own interests, and often are deluded or deceived into thinking that we are right and we are expressing it right. And yet we're deluded, we're deceived. Thus, by the way, the bookends of deception in this passage. You see them in verse 16 and verse 22. Deception is all around us in this section. And so as a result, going back to verse 15 of James 1, when we see something we don't like or hear something we don't like, we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by this desire and desire when it is conceived is sinful anger which brings forth death. Instead of the word of truth, verse 18, which brings forth life. And so this is the first thing we need to understand about anger. Sinful anger is not because of the wrong out there, but because of the wrong in here. In my heart, passions are at war within us. We see something we don't like. And that leads to the second thing that happens in sinful anger. We seek to then control the thing that went wrong. 
with our anger. We seek to control it. We seek to kind of be like God and become lawgiver and judges. If we were to slide down to James 4.12, we would see James says there is only one lawgiver and judge. That's in the context, by the way, of disagreement. And yet in our sinful anger, we, we try to act as lawgiver and judge. We try to act as though we were God, to try to control the thing that we think went out of control or is out of control. Powelson says, quote, we judge others, we criticize, we nitpick, we nag, we attack, we condemn, because, he says, we literally play God. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms we establish, unquote. And so James 4.1 and James 4.12 are the two poles that describe our anger. We are angry because of the passions within us. We then try and act like God by trying to bring into control that which went out of control, thinking that we are bringing about the right, thinking that we're bringing about the good. But look at what uh, James says about that back in our passage, James 1. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Sinful anger is driven by selfish passions, by a lack of self-control. It's, it's upset and it's trying to then force the right, force the good, what they think is good back into place. And we, maybe we raise our voices, maybe we intimidate, maybe we threaten, maybe we slander, maybe we complain, we remove ourselves maybe from the per person or the situation, we go on silent mode, maybe we punch things, maybe we hit things. Anger right has many faces. But in it all, the problem, friends, is not out there, but in here, something is out of control and our anger is seeking to be like God and bring it back into control. But the anger of man, friends, does not bring about the righteousness of God. Your attempts, my attempts to control your friend, your brother or sister in Christ, to bring about control to yourself, maybe your spouse, your kids, your church, by being angry, it won't produce the righteousness of God. Man's anger cannot produce God's righteousness. It cannot produce whatever the way, the truth, the life is. God has to do that. Even if you're on the right side of the righteousness, if, you, if, if you're on that right side, friend, your anger, it is not your anger that can produce God's righteousness in the other person. No matter how good you think your skills of rhetoric are, no matter how high your volume gets, no matter how much you might try to intimidate, it'll never bring the change that you desire. God is going to have to form it in the person that you're talking to. Now, you might be tempted to think that you can do this. You might be tempted to think that your anger can produce the righteousness of God in another person or another thing. You might be tempted to conclude that. You might have even called back on experiences and say, I think I have actually done this, as opposed to what James is saying. Maybe you yell at your spouse or you yell at your kid and maybe they stop talking. You feel good. Right? You got them to shut up. That's what you wanted. But friend, you should know, according to what James is saying, you didn't produce the righteousness of God. You produced the wrongness of yourself in them. And as a result, while you may have gotten what you wanted by yelling or intimidating or complaining, in the end, you didn't produce life. You produced a kind of death. Because the people you affected were controlled by you, 
not by the living God. And as a consequence, you'll then make it harder on them to submit themselves to Christ's good authority, to receive his good word because you've abused your authority. You've confused them. You've made it harder for them to see the beauty and the goodness of Christ's authoritative word because of your tarnished words or actions. And so since we are unable to bring about the righteousness of God with the anger of man, perhaps then this was so cutting to me this week. Perhaps this will then incentivize us more to be less angry and more prayerful. Less angry, more patient. Because we see we must rely upon God to see righteousness formed in those around us. And as we will see in a moment, of course, God uses us as means to bring about his ends. But if the attempt, if the motive is my passions in an effort to control them, with my anger, then that's not a possible equation that releases to the righteousness of God. You've got to be more prayerful, more righteous. God ordains the means as well as the ends. And this is also a good time to note that, friends, it's possible to be right about something in the wrong way. Right? It's possible to be right about something in the wrong way. So, for instance, abortion is wrong, but when you oppose the abortion industry with more sin, it won't produce the righteousness you are endeavoring to bring about. Likewise, you might, you might be, you are right about the doctrine of justification, but if you demean the Roman Catholic with slander or intimidation, you've crossed the line of being right, but in the wrong way. You can't be right about something. You can be right about something in the wrong way. But back to anger as control. When our anger leads us to words or actions that try to bully people into what you want, You are then acting like God. You are then trying to produce the righteousness of God with your anger. And James says that's impossible. You aren't God. You cannot produce righteousness in your own power. God has to bring it by his ends and his means to those ends. And so let me just sum up what we said. How can we spot fruitfulness in disagreement or disillusionment amidst trials and tribulations? How can we exude fruitfulness in disagreement or disillusionment by first, verse 15, recognizing sin is in us? Then secondly, recognize verse 17, the goodness that we find anywhere is from God, that his word brings forth life. And so receive the word of life by being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry, because we know God is the one that will bring it about, not my anger. That's what we've said so far. But there's more. Fourth ingredient. Put away sinfulness. Put away sinfulness. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and put away sinfulness. Or, as James says it there in verse 21, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So guys, the idea here is that you cannot receive pots of roses and sunflowers if your garden is full of weeds. That's the idea. In other words, if your heart is full of selfish passions and thanklessness, not ascribing that every good and every perfect gift you have, especially your salvation is attributed to God's goodness, If you can't even muster up enough self-control to be quiet and listen to someone and calm yourself down, if you can't receive the implanted word, you then cannot receive the implanted word that is able to save your souls unless you repent of sin that has caused you to be so self-centered instead of God and neighbor-centered. Make sense? If we're so full of passions, internally sinful, we got to get that out by the grace of God through repentance. And only then can we begin to receive with better 
application, the implanted word. Repentance is key. As James says in John 12, uh, 24 and 25, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it repents, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Right? We, we're mindful of the gospel. Jesus' death for sin led to the righteousness of eternal life, right? Resurrection life. And so when we die to ourselves, our passions, our preferences, our, our timelines, and we live to Christ's passion, thinking, our, thinking of others as better than self, we will then be able to receive the implanted word, which will then be able to save our souls. And not just once, guys, not just that day that we got saved do we repent and get that filthiness out but every single day you heard us confess it in the prayer this morning you know maybe if you're not a christian you're not used to seeing christians come into gatherings like this and confess our sins this should be normal for christians the difference between the christian and the non-christian is not that we don't sin the difference is we repent of that sin and go to jesus and ask him to forgive us now to be clear Part of that filthiness that James is talking about and that rampant wickedness that he's probably talking about probably has something to do with the anger that he just mentioned. And so for those of you that are convinced by this, uh, are convicted by this meditation on anger this morning, that's probably a good way for you to start to go about receiving the implanted word. This is a good application for you. First of all, you've been convicted. The first thing to do, go to God. Maybe even now, go to God. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him, bring your sin to God and ask him to forgive you. And know that he will. Know that he will. And secondly, go to those of whom your anger has uh, caused sin against. Go to them. Go to those of whom, after receiving that forgiveness of Christ, go to them of whom you sinned again. And with specificity and tears in your eyes. Knowing the death your anger has caused. Ask them to forgive you. And resolve to live as the word tells you to live with their help and most importantly, by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit. Maybe that's what you'll do on the drive home today. And by the way, if that's you, don't be sitting there thinking, well, I can't wait for Him to do it on the way home. All of us struggle with this. But James has more than anger here in mind. We could easily infer that the filthiness and rampant wickedness is all the things he's about to talk about. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The wickedness of partiality. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, right? Faith without works, those that take the name of Jesus but don't live like it. Or you could be thinking about uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, people who've used their words to destroy and not build, and on it goes. You can't receive the implanted word if your heart is so cluttered by the weeds of ongoing sin that are unrepented of. And so, beloved, pull the weeds, repent of sin, go to Christ, make place in your heart for the word to then be implanted, that life may flourish. And you might be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. And life would come as salvation births forth, not only in your life, but those around you. Finally, fifthly, receive the implanted word with meekness. Another translation there would be gentleness. Receive the implanted word with gentleness. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, put away sin, receive with meekness the implanted word. And then, beloved, you'll live in the law of liberty. Then that word will be able to save your souls. You'll be fruitful. 
with meekness. In, other, in many ways, this one word, guys, this one word, meekness, could describe whether or not someone does all the other ones. So if you've tuned out, I've lost you, the sermon's gone too long. We actually got a little heat in the main hall this morning. How about that? Praise the Lord. You kind of come back in. All right. If you've forgotten all the other ones, just go back to this one word. This one word, probably, if, this, if someone is living out meekness in relation to the implanted word, they're probably doing all the other ones. They're probably going to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry, and regularly putting off sin, and vice versa. Right? The, the proud person that often believes they are right and has little room for alternative opinions is often right, slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. If you'll allow me, I'm going to use Ebenezer Scrooge again. Such a good example. Right? Ebenezer Scrooge had no gentleness in him, no meekness in him. He was tight-fisted, couldn't receive any words but his own. His nephew, the, the two men collecting for the poor, even the ghost of Jacob Marley couldn't get through to him. You couldn't tell him anything because he was so full of pride. He was convinced he was right about Christmas and everything else. But when he was made meek, when his heart was melted by the truth, then he was able to receive the words that were given to him. Words that, which led to a kind of liberation, a kind of freedom. And so it is with us, beloved. Words are the word of Christ when we are, as long as we are prideful, as long as we are unwilling to submit ourselves to the law of liberty, to the word of God, no matter what it says, we submit to it. As long as we're prideful, we won't be able to receive it. But if we do, we will be able to receive it when we're humble, when we're meek. We're able to receive that implanted word and then bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. And yet as a people... We are proud, aren't we? I know that I am more often than I would like to believe. We think too highly of ourselves and our own achievements. We criticize others around us that are not like us. If someone tells us something we don't like, we run to the garrisons of our own defenses and immediately throw up a wall of fire against those that tell us something that we don't like. Because we're proud. Could be something maybe in the life of the church could be a doctrinal issue like baptism or the use of gifts. could be some practice of the church like not forsaking the gathering or church membership or church discipline or women in ministry. Or it could be something talked about or valued in culture, things like COVID protocols or the style of music. Right? In Jerusalem, it was circumcision and the Hellenists. In Corinth, it was their favorite teachers. In Philippi, it was complaining. There's always something. People don't like something. They want to express their opinion. And when contrary opinion is spoken in return, an argument arises. And there's very little wisdom that is displayed afterwards because there's so much pride and so little meekness. And of course, the same thing not only happens in our life together, it happens in our families and our individual life. Maybe, maybe one spouse thinks, you know, it's fine for the kids to come home and, from school and play video games. And the other one doesn't. Or maybe the roommate thinks it's fine to have friends over to the wee hours of the morning. The other doesn't. You start talking. There's no meekness. A lot of pride. Argument ensues. Division happens. Death happens. Friends, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in 12 years of pastoral ministry is this. That when, if you want to see people change, you offer them the word of truth regularly and clearly. And you do so with gentleness and prayer, and patience, and fruit comes. All the times when I've tried to ramrod and get bring in to change quick with my words, 
It so rarely has any effect, and if it does, it just produces death. This happens because we have so little of meekness in our lives and so much of pride, so much desire to want to control for our own ends. There's too much of ourselves and not enough of Christ in our thought life and our evaluations. We don't have a lot of depth perception as to how God normally brings about change one degree of glory at a time. Aren't you glad that God treats us with patience and meekness? And so, friends, the answer this morning is for us to aspire for meekness, to be ambitious for gentleness, ambitious for it. I, I used to be one of those William Wallace types. No, 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 meekness is just this other thing. It's not gentleness. Man, you know how much strength you need to have to be gentle? Jesus was, and he was the strongest of all. Be ambitious for gentleness, to be a man or a woman like that. Jesus said, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You want to inherit the earth? Be meek. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Poverty in spirit, meekness, gentleness that's aimed at peacemaking, built upon the word of truth. That's the way of the kingdom. Arrogant, self-righteous spirits driven by personal passions in order to change people in your own way, in your own time, that has never brought about a peace that lasts. It doesn't work. And so, beloved, look to the heart of Christ. It was said of him that he was gentle and lowly of heart. Prostitutes, tax collectors, and drunkards found a home with him, and righteousness came with them. The word was imparted in them because of that gentleness. He, he never needed to defend himself. I've thought this so much. My defensiveness is so often ugliness. He never needed to defend himself because he entrusted himself to the Father and he knew that in time justice would be served. Receive with meekness, beloved, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Gentleness, be open to it. Otherwise, your anger will control you and death will surround you. So let me finish by showing you, Jesus, how he's done this, how he calls us to this. Some of you this morning are in here. By the way, just to be clear, your anger does not define you, Christian. You should know that. Christ defines you, period, full stop. But some of you are listening to all this, these five things, and you're thinking quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry, and you're going, I can't do that. That's too hard. Guess what? You're right. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is too hard. We are too weak. We are too angry. We are too selfish. We are too uh, quick to speak, so slow to listen. This is too hard. You're right. So where then do we get the power to do this? By going to Jesus. Be fruitful and receive the implanted word by going to Jesus and watching him to change you one degree of glory at a time. So here's how I'm going to end. I'm going to read to you Philippians chapter 2. And we see it there perfectly put. And I should mention, I've seen this in our elders. I just want you to know that, Restoration Church. There was one elders meeting about six or eight months ago when I'm thinking, this should be an interesting elders meeting. And I just want you to know that two men in particular did everything James says right here. They were so slow to speak, 
so quick to listen, to understand. They were meek. They were putting off their own sin, even though make a point, ah, that's true. And it was a beautiful meeting, but it was hard. I just want you to know we are imperfect men, very imperfect. But I just want you to be encouraged. Throughout the past couple years especially, I've watched this happen around the elders' table. We can't have, we, this, this work is too hard. Where do we go? We go to Jesus. Here we go. Philippians 2. I'll end with this. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, where is it? In Christ. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul, can you give us an example of that? Sure. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have it. You have it. It's in you, Christian. Who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus was in the form of God. He was God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't hold on to it but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Do you hear meekness there? Gentleness? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christian, you need to know that that's where sin dies. Turn from sin, trust in him, Christ on the cross. Verse 9, therefore, because of Christ's meekness, by taking that stair step down, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Gospel. And then look what Paul does. Verse 12. Therefore, in light of gospel, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work it out, he works it in. For his pleasure. Here it is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast, looking for the word, right? Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. There it is. If you want to know how to do this work, just go back today, read that passage. Look at Philippians 2, 1 down to 16. Go to Jesus and ask him to form this in you and then ask him to form it in us that would be a kind of people as we have been, thanks be to God. Amidst all the trials and tribulations going on in the world, that we would be a kind of people that go to the gospel for our pattern, for our power and our pleasure to be people that are slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, putting off sin, receiving the implanted word which is able to save our 
souls with meekness, with gentleness, as our Savior shows us. Let's go to him now. Jesus, we confess that we are so often quick to speak and not slow to listen. Forgive us, Lord. We are are so too often not the kinds of people that James talks about. We too often are not quick to hear. We too often are not slow to speak. We too often are uh, quick to anger. Forgive us, God, and thank you that you do. All of our sin cast away. And your spirit dwells within us that we might be a kind of distinctive people, salt and light to the world, that is arguing and complaining a community of transcendent truth that illustrates love amidst disagreement, that illustrates the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Thank you for the word. Thank you for a great salvation. May those that don't have it come to have it today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.